The Germans broke through at Armentiers. What? The entire British Third Corps is trapped in the Belgian lowlands. And this paper is already a week old. Calm down. Father, with my fluent German, I could become an officer. Yes, and lead other young boys to the slaughter and be slaughtered yourself. The men who served under you worshipped you. Then they were damn fools, all of them, weren't they? This is a turning point in the history of the world. H how can How can we... we what? Father, you can't expect us not to be part of this. You taught us... I taught you to think for yourselves. That's what I taught you. And to defend what's ours. Yes, what is ours? What is ours? Well, we've already lost two of our cousins at the mine. And we've never even met. And don't talk at me, boys, if I've never seen a war. Not a war like this, you haven't. Ah. They said that about the War of Secession. They said it about the Indian Wars. That's what people who want to sell newspapers say about wars. These are not the Indian Wars. We're fighting against naked aggression. There will be no more talk of wars in this house! Damn it! I'm going to Canada to enlist. I'm going with him. Hello, everyone. That was a clip from the 1994 film Legends of the Fall. Colonel William Ludlow, played by Anthony Hopkins, is trying to convince two of his sons that war is a racket, and that the one currently raging in Europe is not an exception. His failure to do so, and the tragic consequences that ensue, establish the whole arc of the story. But how did thousands upon thousands of young American men become convinced that travelling halfway around the world to participate in one of Europe's endless wars was some sort of noble cause. How did they come to believe this war was different? One of the core ideals of the United States had been to avoid entangling alliances, exactly the kind of alliances that had just transformed a single assassination into a continent-wide slaughter. Why would the US now abandon this principle to dive, conscript first, into that chaos? That's what I'm going to look at in this episode. It's perhaps a little counterintuitive, but I'll start out with the how, then move to examining the more in-depth question of why. The how was in many ways simply a carbon copy of the way the Spanish-American War had been brought about 19 years earlier. The role of propaganda was, once again, central. You may recall from episode 3, I asserted that the Spanish had a history of acting brutally in Cuba. However, rather than reporting on actual incidents, America's yellow press preferred grotesque fabrications designed to turn Spanish soldiers into inhuman monsters. Stories about Cubans being fed to sharks, massacres perpetrated at hospitals, and vicious assaults on women. The Spaniard was presented as a giant gorilla that the noble American man needed to confront and destroy. This gorilla was now given a rebrand, with the famous King Kong-like image of the German mad brute stealing away an innocent American lady. Cuban atrocity stories became Belgium atrocity stories. Much like the Spanish in Cuba, there's no doubt the German army did act brutally in Belgium, killing an estimated 6,000 civilians. This could of course be compared to British actions in South Africa and American ones in the Philippines. Like Cuba, however, the press ran with fabricated stories of Germans cutting the hands off children, the breasts off women, and tossing babies on bayonets. Such claims were a British propaganda effort, proven to be fabrications in the years after the war. One of the very first actions the British took upon the outbreak of war was to cut the underseas cable connecting Germany to the United States, thereby taking control of the narrative reaching the American people. 
They found the US media entirely receptive to their efforts, with the New York Times, ever the mouthpiece of empire, declaring that the committee investigating German atrocities in Belgium have made further disputes impossible. In moves reminiscent of French fries being renamed Freedom Fries during the Iraq War, sauerkraut, dash hounds, and German measles became Liberty Cabbage, Liberty Dogs, and, strangely, Liberty Measles. In a less endearing show of insanity, at least one German-American was actually lynched, with several more proclaiming their loyalty to the Star-Spangled Banner under threat of the rope. The second, and perhaps most major issue, was that of the sea blockade. I appreciate that in episode 14 I examined Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor's highly controversial claim that the British Foreign Office might have deliberately allowed their blockade to leak up until 1916 in order that Germany could stay in the war long enough to be utterly decimated. Whatever the truth of that, whether enough food was allowed in to keep the German army going or not, it was certainly restrictive enough to cause starvation amongst the population. One German writer commented that the women, who stood in pallid queues before shops, spoke more about their children's hunger than about the deaths of their husbands. Although a blockade targeting civilians was forbidden under international treaties, the US government did little to protest it, whilst American businesses were busy supplying the Allies' war effort. The German response was to engage in submarine warfare. The most famous casualty of this was of course the Lusitania, where of the 1,198 fatalities, 128 were Americans. Conspiracy and intrigue surround the Lusitania. There are substantial questions around the nature of its cargo, and whether it was deliberately sent into U-boat infested water in the hope it would be sunk. I might produce a bonus episode on this, but for now, what can be said for certain is that the vessel was carrying ammunition for the British Army, and the Germans had taken out adverts in New York newspapers warning people not to board. Woodrow Wilson placed America on an inevitable path to war with Germany by declaring that the United States had the right and duty to protect Americans sailing on ships flying a belligerent flag, and that if any American vessels or American lives should be lost through U-boat action, Germany would be held to strict accountability. The Germans observed that submarine warfare was a reprisal for the illegal hunger blockade. A compromise was produced by the United States, whereby Britain would allow food into Germany and the Germans would abandon submarine attacks on merchant ships. This was welcomed by Berlin, but rejected by London. Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan reasoned with Wilson that Germany has a right to prevent contraband going to the Allies, and a ship carrying contraband should not rely on passengers to protect her from attack. It would be like putting women and children in front of an army. Convinced of Wilson's intent to drag the United States into war, Bryan resigned in June of 1915, commenting, Why be shocked by the drowning of a few people, if there is to be no objection to the starving of a nation? In guaranteeing the security of US citizens on board armed belligerent merchant ships, whether he knew it or not, Woodrow Wilson was drawing on previous imperial strategy for initiating conflict. Think back to Hawaii in 1893, where US Marines guaranteed the success of the revolutionaries under the justification of protecting American citizens. It was the same in Nicaragua, where government soldiers were prevented from firing on rebels for fear of hitting Americans. 
the same tactic was now being used to initiate war with Germany. Desperate to avoid drawing the US into war, the German Navy did for a period ease up on submarine attacks. Eventually facing starvation, on January 31, 1917, Berlin announced that the next day it would begin unrestricted submarine warfare. With a revolutionary turmoil in Russia, the German High Command believed that it could defeat the British and French on the Western Front and strangle Britain before American forces could be trained and shipped to Europe. The United States responded by immediately severing diplomatic relations with Berlin. The final major factor in bringing the United States into the war was the Zimmermann telegram. This was a secret diplomatic communication issued from the German Foreign Office in January 1917 that proposed a military alliance between Germany and Mexico if the United States entered World War I against Germany. With Germany's aid, Mexico would recover Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. It read, We intend to begin on the 1st of February unrestricted submarine warfare. We shall endeavour in spite of this to keep the United States of America neutral. In the event of this not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance on the following basis. Make war together. Make peace together. Generous financial support and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. The settlement in detail is left to you. You will inform the President of the above most secretly as soon as the outbreak of war with the United States of America is certain, and add the suggestion that he should, in his own initiative, invite Japan to immediate adherence and at the same time mediate between Japan and ourselves. Please call the President's attention to the fact that the ruthless employment of our submarines now offers the prospect of compelling England in a few months to make peace. Upon its publication, many people believed it to have been an obvious British forgery. Newspaper baron William Randolph Hearst, who had been instrumental in bringing about the Spanish-American War, did not favour war with Germany. He set out to prove the telegram's inauthenticity by arranging a press conference in Berlin where Arthur Zimmerman was invited to say as much. Instead, Zimmerman confirmed it was indeed an authentic offer. In their book Prolonging the Agony, Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor express lingering doubts about this story, saying that Zimmerman was either having a cerebral meltdown or betraying Germany by handing this excuse to Wilson to enter the fray on a plate. Whilst Zimmerman's actions do appear like an inexplicable blunder, it is worth noting there had for some years been a wider German strategy of fomenting conflict between the United States and Mexico, with the aim of keeping Uncle Sam tied up and out of Europe. It's possible the telegram was just an extension of this. Ostensibly, Zimmermann had hoped that the American people would understand Germany only planned on funding a Mexican invasion in the event of war. According to Doherty and McGregor, however, this detail was omitted in much of the American press giving the people the impression of German aggression against the homeland. I could mention one further justification for war, which never gets talked about. German agents actually set off one of the biggest non-nuclear explosions ever in New York City. Bizarrely, this event has been written out of history. At a time when the Wilson administration was effectively fabricating reasons for war, this one wasn't called upon. If you'd like to know more, I've made a short presentation about it in the subscriber area. 
On the 6th of April 1917, Congress voted to declare war on Germany. Wilson had asked for a war to end all wars that would make the world safe for democracy. Those are the ostensible reasons why, with unrestricted submarine warfare usually ranking on top. Perhaps even that is not the real reason, however. I'll look at what might be when I examine the question of why. First, I'll take a quick look at some of the internal consequences of Woodrow Wilson's war for the United States. On the domestic front, the declaration of war allowed Wilson to go full fascist. The Espionage and Sedition Acts were passed in 1917 and 18, respectively. These acts tore up constitutional protection of free speech, criminalising any language that was disloyal, profane, scurrilous or abusive about the US government. It essentially became illegal to criticise Wilson's war. We see a modern echo of this, where the war against an apparent virus was made effectively immune from criticism through the state's relationship with tech giants. In a low-tech precursor to the NSA, federal agents were granted the authority to look through citizens' mail, checking for any illegal writing. Approximately 2,000 people were charged under these acts, and the Wilson regime used them to pursue its political opponents. I'll present some examples taken from George Andrew Napolitano's book, Theodore and Woodrow. Five Russian socialists were sentenced to jail for 20 years each because they had spoken out against sending American troops to Russia and against American interference with the Russian Revolution. The publisher of a German newspaper, Victor Berger, was sentenced to 20 years for printing anti-war editorials. From his jail cell, he was repeatedly elected to Congress by the people of Wisconsin, finally taking his seat there after the Supreme Court overturned his sentence in 1921. The Assistant Secretary of the State in Wisconsin, Louis Nagler, was sentenced to 20 years in jail for criticising the Red Cross and the YMCA as being grifters. Goodness only knows what they'd have done to the village people. Nagel's conviction was overturned in 1920. Famed anarchist Emma Goldman, founder of the No Conscription League, was arrested under the Espionage Act. During her trial, she commented, We say that if America has entered the war to make the world safe for democracy, she must first make democracy safe in America. How else is the world supposed to take America seriously, when democracy at home is daily being outraged, free speech suppressed, peaceable assemblies broken up by overbearing and brutal gangsters in uniform, when the free press is curtailed and every independent opinion gagged? Verily, poor as we are in democracy, how can we give of it to the world? Goldman's arguments fell on deaf ears, and he was jailed for two years, then deported to Russia. The most politically charged arrest was of Socialist Party presidential candidate Eugene Debs. He was sentenced to 10 years for telling working-class Americans that they were the principal fighting force behind the war, therefore, they alone should be the ones to decide matters of war and peace. From his jail cell, he ran for president in the 1920 election and received nearly 1 million votes, which at the time was 3.4% of the total. He was pardoned in 1921. The Sedition Act was repealed in 1921. The Espionage Act remains to this day, however, and has been used to pursue Vietnam War whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, 9-11 NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake, the CIA's torture whistleblower John Kiriakou, and Daniel Hale, an Air Force veteran who exposed the drone program. This is to name but a few. 
The war with Germany proved nowhere near as popular as the one against Spain, where over half a million men had rushed to sign up. In the first three months, just over 100,000 men volunteered, so Congress introduced conscription. Woodrow Wilson, who I really do think was insane, described the military draft as, in no sense a conscription of the unwilling, it is, rather, selection from a nation which has volunteered in mass. I find this such a revealing statement, as it shows Wilson has no concept of the individual as having innate value. This is why I call him a fascist, in line of Benito Mussolini's dictum of, everything in the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. Some 2,000 conscientious objectors were jailed and subject to small rations, solitary confinement, and physical abuse, from which two of them died. Being drafted into far-off wars would become the norm for young American men for the next 50 years. Protests over the Vietnam War prompted a move to a more economic type of draft, to give the appearance of a volunteer army. The war presented an opportunity for the big business community to merge with the state, guaranteeing their profits would be protected from free market competition. This was an acceleration of an already present process I discussed in the last episode. To quote the economist and historian Murray Rothbard, more than any other single period, World War I was the critical watershed for the American business system. It was a war collectivism, a totally planned economy run largely by big business interests through the instrumentality of the central government, which served as the model, the precedent, and the inspiration for state corporate capitalism for the remainder of the 20th century. The Wilson administration established a war industries board, which gained control over all purchasing, pricing, and allocation of resources. The board was partially run by big business leaders, who were then granted wartime contracts. This represented an immediate financial bonanza for the businesses the government chose to be winners, as well as a long-term redefining of the US, away from free markets and towards a corporate imperialist state. A lot of the state interference was revoked after the war, only to see a return under Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal 15 years later. Now let's look at the deeper reasons why the United States went to war. Firstly, there were major financial factors. From the war's outset, the US had become essentially economically allied with Britain and France. Famously, the biggest player in this was the financial house of J.P. Morgan. However, it's estimated that half a million Americans, many from the wealthy and influential East Coast establishment, invested loans in the Allies. When the Germans embarked on unrestricted submarine warfare, American ship owners refused to send their vessels into the Atlantic war zone, and goods purchased in the United States by Morgan Banks sat idle on the wharves. Tsar Nicholas II abdicated in March of 1917, leaving the Russian position in doubt. If Germany was able to win the war, or at least force the Allies to the negotiating table, the security of the American loans would not be guaranteed. With the US entry, the government underwrit all future loans, removing the risk from the banks. Finally, I'll examine some of the deeper ideological reasons why certain members of the American elite favoured war as a way of bringing about desired domestic reform and a new international order. The domestic reform I've already addressed, with the merger of corporation and state. It only remains to be said that this wasn't an opportunist move by big business, rather the war was seen in advance as a way to reshape the United States in this manner. 
Historian Ralph Rako states that progressive notions of the obsolescence of laissez-faire and of constitutionally limited government, the urgent need to organize society scientifically, and the superiority of the collective over the individual were propagated by the most influential sector of the intelligentsia and began to make inroads into the nation's political life. John Dewey praised the immense impetus to reorganization afforded by the war, while Walter Lippmann wrote, We can dare to hope for things which we never dared to hope for in the past. The New Republic magazine rejoiced in the war's possibilities for broadening social control, subordinating the individual to the group and the group to society, and advocating that the war be used as a pretext to foist innovations upon the country. To examine the international aspect, I'll look at the particular example of steel magnate Andrew Carnegie. As you may recall from episode 5, Carnegie was an avowed anti-imperialist. He staunchly opposed the US occupation of the Philippines, to the point of offering to buy the island's independence for $20 million. That's the price the US had paid Spain for them. Born in Scotland, Carnegie was also an Anglophile, or maybe Britophile who advocated for the reunification of Britain and the United States. He believed that the combined country's power would maintain world peace and disarmament. In his 1886 book, Triumphant Democracy, he wrote, Let men say what they will. I say that as surely as the sun in the heavens once shone upon Britain and America united, so surely it is one morning to rise, to shine upon, to greet again the reunited States the British-American Union. In episode 12, I examined Cecil Rhodes' plan for an Anglo-American establishment that would dominate the world, and his establishment of a secret society, the Society of the Elect, to bring this about. Carnegie was connected to this through Rhodes' associate, William T. Steed, author of Rhodes' Last Will and Testament. Unlike Rhodes' initial plan, Carnegie believed that rather than the United States being absorbed back into the British Empire, it made more sense for Britain to join the United States. Steed writes that Rhodes had at first recoiled from the idea of securing the union of the English-speaking race by consenting to the absorption of the British Empire in the American Union if it could not be secured in any other way. However, by the 1890s, he had accepted that the English-speaking union was so great as an end in itself as to justify even the sacrifice of the monarchical features and isolated existence of the British Empire. John Ball was open to being the junior partner of Uncle Sam. Carnegie, like Steed, was opposed to the use of war as a means of bringing this Anglo-American establishment into being. In the years prior to the war, he had attempted to establish mediation efforts between Britain and Germany. Ironically, he asked Theodore Roosevelt to lead this effort. Roosevelt had utter contempt for Carnegie, writing in a letter, I have tried to like Carnegie, but it is pretty difficult. There is no type of man for whom I feel a more contemptuous abhorrence than for the one who makes a god of mere money-making, and at the same time is always yelling out that kind of utterly stupid condemnation of war, which in almost every case springs from a combination of defective physical courage of unmanly shrinking from pain and effort, and of hopelessly twisted ideals. In 1910, Carnegie established the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He truly believed that war could be eliminated by stronger international laws and organizations. 
The outbreak of war in Europe is said to have left him utterly depressed and deeply despondent. Carnegie died in 1919, and I must concede I am not entirely clear on what his thoughts were on the US entering the war. In more conspiratorial literature, Carnegie is often presented as being for it, but from what I've seen, this is based on a rather liberal interpretation of quotes. For example, in 1915, Carnegie wrote that, It is my firm belief and opinion that never at any time in the history of the world did the future hold out such definite promise for permanent peace as it does now. The present war is so appalling and shocking that it in itself is probably doing more to put an end to war than any peace propaganda could have accomplished in half a century. The longer this war continues, and the more terrible its results, the stronger the argument for permanent world peace. The last sentence is the crucial part. However, this seems to merely reflect a truism, rather than a desire. What certainly is the case is that from the beginning of the war, the endowment trustees unanimously declared that the most effective means of promoting durable international peace is to prosecute the war against the imperial government of Germany to final victory for democracy. All the trustees proceeded to work for the war effort. The most generous interpretation of why a peace society would advocate for war is that they saw world peace as being downstream of world order. First, order had to be established, and that involved crushing Germany. It's also contended that they acted to prolong the war with the goal of international order in mind. Andrew Carnegie is but one example of a wider Anglo-American establishment. In addition to seeking financial profit from the war, J.P. Morgan was also a committed Anglophile, involved in the establishment of the prestigious and secretive Pilgrim Society. This is said to be a sister organisation to Rhodes' Society of the Elect. Dedicated to the friendship of English-speaking peoples, the Pilgrim Society is a veritable who's who of the British and American elite. Until recently, its patron was none less than the Queen. It's telling then that such a group only commands a 400-word article on Wikipedia, and virtually no attention outside of that. I'd like to look more at it another time. I mention it here just to demonstrate how this Anglo-American establishment took shape in the upper echelons of society between two powers traditionally hostile to each other. The war was sold to Woodrow Wilson, who prior to becoming president had no great interest in foreign affairs, as a way of becoming a Christ-like saviour of the world. Wilson, who truly believed God had appointed him president, was seduced by advisers such as Colonel Edwin Mandel House in believing he would be the one to bring peace to the world. House told him, this is the part I think you are destined to play in this world tragedy, and it is the noblest part that has ever come to a son of man. This country will follow you along such a path, no matter what the cost may be. The US entry into World War I can be seen as a recolonization of America by Britain, with the dutiful colony coming to the mother country's aid. It can also be seen as both Britain and America being colonized by a globalist imperial ideology. I'll start to wrap up there for today. I'll present a list of books I've drawn on in the info box. I'll just single out Ralph Rako's essay, World War I, The Turning Point, published in the book, The Cost of America's Pyrrhic Victories. I've also used Rodney Howard Brown and Paul L. Williams' book, The Killing of Uncle Sam, as a guide to the writing of Andrew Carnegie. 
I'd like to say thank you to the people who have signed up to the membership section or made a donation on Buy Me A Coffee. I am hosting regular Zoom groups now if you're interested in discussing any of these topics in more detail. I shall also be composing some bonus material from this episode for the forum. Thank you very much for listening. Next time, I think we're off to the Russian Revolution. 